Everybody and welcome to Rappin' with Reef Bum, a live talk show on YouTube. I am your host, Keith Burkelhammer, and each episode I have a guest from the reef keeping community. And today I'd like to welcome Scott Leaf, the Director of Customer Support at Royal Exclusive USA. Scott is coming live from Montana. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Keith. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Scott, these are uh, certainly some strange times and uncertain times for everybody in the world, you know, in terms of the uh, coronavirus. How are you and your family dealing with all this in, in Montana? Is it, is it hitting you guys or is it not that bad? Well, you know, surprisingly, when you look at the states, um, you know, and, and you look at the numbers as far as the outbreak goes, Montana is second to last in terms of um, virus infections and virus, uh, well, actually, we're number, the, the last state in the country in terms of um, number of viruses to the population count, and second only to Alaska um, in terms of the least amount of virus infections out here. So Montana is probably the least impacted. I guess our governor out here did call a, you know, stay-at-home order into effect, so Pretty much all our restaurants and bars and everything shut down other than takeout only. And from our aspect, that's probably been the one thing that hurts because, you know, we're isolated out here being 12 miles out of the nearest town, which would be Whitefish, Montana. And we're fortunate enough to have a bar and grill a thousand feet up the road on the lake. Um, but bar and grill is pretty much shut down other than Saturday and Sunday where we can go get takeout only. So that's, you know, kind of been a, a, a bummer for us in terms of, um, you know, social activities. But on the flip side, it's great to go grocery shopping right now. <laughs> grocery stores are pretty well empty, no lines. So, you know, that side of it's real nice. Yeah. And um, are the, uh, are the uh, shelves bare out there? Are you getting any, uh, you find toilet paper? Yeah, we can get toilet paper. Um, you know, the, the, the biggest issue we found was Costco and dog food. Dog food was kind of hit and miss for a little while there when you got two great Danes, um, you know, being able to get your dog foods kind of a concern, but we managed to stay ahead of the curve there and we've been, you know, reasonably well stocked on dog food. So it hasn't impacted us too much. Um, you know, and outside of that, I couldn't think of a better place to be, um, you know, quarantined or stuck in my house than Montana. Yeah. You're a lucky man. So you and I are friends on Facebook and, and you, you post a lot of pictures of this, uh, you call it a homestead on the river here in, in uh, Montana. And I've certainly been very intrigued, and I thought it would be really, really cool if maybe you shot a video for us, kind of like a walkthrough of the house and the property and, and the scenery. So let's take a look at that before we dive into the uh, reef keeping stuff that we're going to talk about today. And, and uh, I'm going to roll the video right now, and then we'll come back in a couple of minutes. How's that sound? Sounds great. All right, here we go. A beautiful spring morning in Northwest quick tour of our property. We moved out here in uh, January from Southern California. Went to boarding school out here in the early to mid 80s and wanted to move back ever since. And we found a fixer upper on an acre and a half of riverfront property out here. See, I've had my hands full since we moved here. Uh, you can see our hen house that I built. We have a dozen hens that'll be supplying us with eggs. 
That is the greenhouse. It was pretty dilapidated when we moved here. I've since ripped the walls out, ripped the roof off, rebuilt the walls, rebuilt the roof. Gotta rip some new wood paneling for the siding, paint it, put the windows back in. And then you can see I've got some barrels and a big tank over there that'll be part of an aquaponic system that'll utilize fish to feed the plants. These blue barrels will be cutting half down the middle to make the planters. So we'll have a little aquaponic system in there growing our vegetables. It's our garage shop there, and I've got all my wood tools, table saw, chops, all that stuff set up on the porch. We've got our Stillwater River there. Looking forward to a nice spring trout run. We have an eagle right there flying overhead. That is a golden eagle. Our little well house. Off in the distance over there, you can see behind the trees, the Stillwater Bar and Grill. Uh, we're about 12 miles outside of Whitefish, Montana, but we have a bar and grill about a thousand feet from the house. And just beyond the bar and grill is the lower Stillwater Lake. So plenty of fishing, and we're situated right in the middle of the Stillwater National Forest. Kind of hard to see over there, but we've got the lower Stillwater Lake there, and there's dozens of lakes within miles of our house. A little slice of heaven. Uh, you can see this trench here. We had a water line issue when we first moved in and didn't have pressure to the house, so had to have the uh, new line put in from the well house to the house and still got to clean that up. And working on getting the yard in shape, planting trees. We've got pear trees over here, a couple apple trees over there to plant, a plum tree in the front, cherry tree that I've got to plant. And I'm going to get work in the garden here this weekend as well as the greenhouse to get it all set up. In a couple of weeks, we'll start moving our chickens into the hen house and I'll get their little pen assembled. And well, that is the quick spring tour of our little homestead here in Montana. All right, Scott. So my question is, um, where's the reef tank going to go? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Um, you know, as a lot of you guys may realize, or you may have seen me or seen videos before with me, I had a 500-gallon reef tank, 700-gallon system, and that tank was up and running in my house for 23 years straight. Um, you know, it was an extremely healthy reef tank, and when we decided to sell our home in California, we kind of hoped that the buyer would want the tank, um, but as it turned out, um, they didn't. Um, and in a hurry, I had to break down the tank and sell off all my livestock and, you know, some of the equipment and stuff. Um, but with this new acquisition in our place in Montana, you know, we're in the midst of a remodel and, um, the whole prospect of a reef tank is kind of on the shelf right now. And, you know, favor of getting our, uh, getting our, um, house remodeled, you know, completing the remodel, which I'm pretty much doing myself and a lot of other projects. So unfortunately the reef tank is not a priority right now. It might be something I'll revisit next year. Um, once the remodel and stuff is done in the meantime, um, I'm going to combine my love for fish, uh, with some necessities, you know, the, an aquaponic system for our greenhouse, which will incorporate fish and some of my expertise and controller, you know, uh, knowledge, um, to at least put that into play where, you know, it'll put food on our plate and whatnot. But right now the reef tank, unfortunately, isn't a priority, but obviously I'm very much involved in the reefing community, both with Royal Exclusive and other activities that I'm involved with. 
So how long have you been in the, uh, the hobby, Scott? How, how many years have, have you been a hobbyist? And I, I know you're working for Royal Exclusive right now and you're in the business, so to speak. But uh, when, did you get, when did you get started and how did you get started? I got started, it would have been around 1987. Um, I was renting a, uh, a bedroom from a guy um, when I first moved out of the house. And I went and bought a fish tank. I think it was a 60-gallon tank, set up saltwater setup, and it would lion fish and stuff like that. Um, and I was young and dumb back then. I bounced a check on the store, and they came back and repossessed the tank on me several months later. And the fish that I bought elsewhere, too, it was kind of a stupid thing. And um so that was where I kind of got started. And then a handful of months or a year later, um, a friend gave me a 90 gallon tank. I set that up. Um, I got an eel and uh, that wasn't big enough. So I ended up getting a hundred gallon tank. Um, and that wasn't big enough. And the next thing I knew I had a 240 gallon acrylic tank. So that would put us to about 1990. Um, and that's when I kind of got into sharks and I was importing white tip reef sharks and stuff, um, from Hawaii and black tips and nurse sharks and i had kiddie pools set up in the garage with these homemade um, biological setups basically styrofoam containers with live sand in them and i'd pump the water into the live sand and the live sand would go through the or the water would go, go through the live sand and dump back into these kiddie pools that i had in the garage and a couple of my favorite sharks were white tip reef sharks i had in my 240 gallon display which was a little bit too small and around 1995 um, was when I commissioned my 480 gallon display to be built. And so I had that set up as a shark tank for a while. It was set up as a uh, racetrack type of tank with a central overflow and, um, sharks got to be a pain in the ass. I'm not a maintenance person. I'll admit that. And feeding sharks daily became a messy and cumbersome task. And eventually I burnt out on the sharks. My last sharks were sold to the Mirage Casino in Vegas and that's when I got into reef keeping. So that had been right around 1996, I got into reef keeping. And then 97 is when we bought our new house. Um, and at that point, I basically, um, once escrow closed, we chopped into the walls. And within three days, I had the tank set up there, built in and up and running uh, with all the livestock moved from the other house. And that was pretty much all she wrote. I had that 500-gallon display, display right up until January of this year, January 2020, when I finally sold it. What kind of equipment did you have in the 500 gallon? What was uh, like the basics of the setup? Well, it was kind of an evolution. So, you know, initially I had metal halides and VHO um, lighting over it um, with a hodgepodge of little giants of walkies and all that other stuff. And in 2010, my electric bills were pushing $1,100 a month. Uh, my chiller was running 12 hours a day. Um, and at that point, I invested a whole bunch of money and I redesigned my sump and refugium or just redesigned a sump and uh, built a refugium, got rid of the wet dry, got rid of all the halides, switched over to LEDs, and I was an early adopter. I went to Reef Techs back then, um, dropped my electric bill from $1,100 a month to about three fifty. Wow. didn't need a chiller anymore. It was kind of miraculous. I switched over to Reef Flows, and um, they were cool for a while. And then I came into the Royal Exclusive RD3 pump. Um, in 2010, I was running an Alpha 300, um, Vertex Alpha 300, a um, handful of years later, I had upgraded to different LEDs, capsules, incidentally, and then found the Royal Royal Exclusive RD3230s, put one of those into the system on my closed loop and loved it so much, I bought another one for my return pump. Um, and then from there, it just kind of migrated. I had the reflows were out of the system, so I had the two RD3230s. Um, and then I guess it would have been around 20... 
2017 or 2018 when GHL released their LX7, the Mitra's LX7 or 7206s. I added six of those to the system. So essentially I had two RD3230s. I had a Mesotunzi circulation pump, 6205s and 6105s, um, eight Kessel 360WEs, which I kept those just because I love the shimmer. And then the Mitra's became my primary lighting. And that was pretty much all, you know, oh, and then a Bubble King Supermarin 250. And I'll note that all of which I bought out of my own pocket. Um, I wasn't working <laughs> at the time but clearly i was an enthusiast and i think it was my enthusiasm and knowledge of the product that got me involved directly with royal exclusive in a support model or a support role with them what um what kind of was it a mixed reef was it an sps dominant reef it was a mix um i had all kinds of soft coral sps coral um lps coral you know, pretty much everything, you know, that was grown from frags. It just it was literally growing out of the water, but it was such a hodgepodge. And it got to the point where I was literally having to rip LPS or, SP or um, soft corals out of the tank just to make room for more SPS because there was no real estate for coral in there anymore. It was just out of control, you know, and I'm one of those people. I don't subscribe to that low nutrient system. I, I ran high nutrients. My nitrates were um, pushing 25 and my phosphates were 0.25 and, you know, people, wow. you know, would like, you know, that's crazy. My pH 7.8, you know, at night, 8.0 during the day. And, you know, I wasn't one to chase numbers. Again, I mentioned it before. I'm not a maintenance person. Um, my tank was pretty much in cruise control. I ran a calcium reactor that was very well tuned, um, you know, set it and forget it. And my tank just took care of itself. I mean, I granted, I did have everything automated from my Genesis for new automatic water change system to, you know, my homegrown ATO that was controlled by my Apex and my GHL Profilux. Um, but, you know, it was, it was set and forget it. I mean, the only thing I did do was clean the glass, and I was pretty bad at uh, doing that, too. How did you find the transition between the halides you know, to the um, LEDs in terms of your SPS, did you did you see any uh, drop off in the growth, or was it pretty much um, you know same as what you had with the halides? Um, that would have been back around 2010, and uh, to be honest, I didn't really have any SPS back then. You know, I had a mix of soft, mostly soft corals and LPS at the time. Um, I was really never into the SPS corals personally. I like the movement that you get with the soft corals, especially when you've got the wave motion in the tank. So that to me was always very soothing and more natural. Um, and being a scuba diver, I mean, most SPS corals in the ocean are kind of land looking. So it never really excited me terribly much. And I think, you know, I was probably well into my LE investment in LEDs that some friends gave me some SPS coral. Um, and I took them begrudgingly, to be honest, because I, again, I was never really into them. And, Naturally, my luck, they took off. And so, you know, from there, I, I obviously bought more SPS and acquired more SPS along the way. And, um, you know, I was fortunate. I was just, you know, really successful with it. And I, I know lighting and I understand what corals need. Um, and so from that aspect, I never overdid it. I never, you know, bumped my lights up out of control. Um, I've kind of always felt that par meters were kind of a waste. But I will note that when I transitioned from metal halide to LED, I did use PAR meters to kind of measure the PAR with the halides and match my LEDs as closely as possible, PAR-wise and also um, color-wise, you know, which I used my eyes, obviously, to kind of make that migration so I didn't shock my corals. And the end result was that the transition was seamless. And I used that same uh, method when I switched from the reef text to Kessels. And when I switched from Kessels 
to the maestros. It's about the only time I ever use par meters because I don't really believe they give you a very accurate reading when it comes to what corals need. I think they're very misleading. Yeah, no, that's that's a smart move. You always, um, I think it's always very wise to take things slow with a reef tank, and you don't want to make any too uh, sudden changes, and that's that's not yes. going to be good for everything. I am still using metal halides on my tank. I've got I got the video loop running behind us, but um, I I don't have any issues with the um, with the heat because my tank is in the basement and it's Vermont, and usually in the summertime it doesn't get too warm up you know here so it uh i have i have uh you know still resisted the leds but i certainly think it's probably time to give them a shot at one point so yeah i i i'm a firm believer in leds i mean they've been good for me so so scott let's uh let's talk now about royal exclusive and and full disclosure i do sell your products you know, but I only do sell products that I actually use and believe in. But uh, getting that out of the way, um, what, how, did, how did you end up? Well, I think you already talked about how you ended up with Royal Exclusive. But uh, just tell us a little bit about the company. You know, what, what's the mission? What are they all about? Well, you know, they, they kind of see themselves as a um, boutique shop. You know, most of their, their products, especially when you look at like the dream boxes and stuff, they're made to order all handmade, as is all their other products or skimmers or pumps are all hand assembled and stuff. Um, you know, it's not a large production company. Um, they don't want to be a large production company. They want to cater to the, you know, mid to high end crowd and, and quality first. Um, you know, Klaus, the owner of the company, he's a, you know, engineer type of person and he's always got his hands on uh, everything which is good because he takes a lot of pride in the products um, that he develops and it shows in the quality of the products as well um, but you know as, as many people know and some don't know royal exclusive is obviously um, coveted for the red dragon brand of pumps and the bubble king skimmers uh, but then they have their dream box product line that are unlike any other product out there and you know a lot of people out there make sumps um, but you know, they, they kind of take the whole designing and building of a sump to a whole nother level that you don't find anywhere. I mean, the fact, you know, that people are building PVC sumps is no surprise. And the, the dream boxes are PVC. But unlike everybody else, every panel on the dream box is CNC cut and every seam is interlocking. So it's not just flat seam against flat seam that's, you know, welded or, or solvent welded. Um, these seams all interlock. Um, so that it kind of goes together like a jigsaw puzzle. And ultimately, I mean, it makes it basically impossible to, to blow a seam on these things. And there's solvent weld. And then the owner of the company, Klaus, hand welds every single um, seam himself with his, you know, key-based welder, um, which is kind of unheard of. You really don't see many owners of companies doing that kind of hands-on work. And at the end of the day, it really kind of shows in the quality the products but you know they don't envision themselves as a mass production company as i said they kind of want to cater to you know the niche niche market where you know really people are not cutting corners when you know only the best will do and, and that's the one thing that i respect the most about the product line um is you know quality first and and the other neat thing about it is is that all the products whether you're looking at pumps or you're looking at the skimmers are all conservatively rated and that's not something that you typically find in this industry where most people will rate a pump, you know, and say it's X amount of gallons an hour and they don't generally produce that kind of flow. That's not something that you'll find 
um, with Royal Exclusive. And the other thing is too, and I, I find myself in this quagmire all the time where people come to me about skimmers and I'm always telling them to go smaller because our skimmers are very overrated or, or conservatively rated rather, not overrated, they're underrated, they're conservatively rated. And people have a hard time understanding why somebody involved in a business would be recommending a smaller skimmer versus trying to upsell to a larger skimmer. And it's just because, you know, if you want the one to perform properly, sometimes less is more. Oh, you still there, Scott? I am here. Okay. All right. Lost you for a second. Yeah, no, I, um, I always, you know, I thought bigger was, was, uh, it was okay to be better to be bigger in terms of a skimmer. And, um, yeah, I, that, that's something that, um, I didn't realize until, uh, you and I talked about it a few years ago and, and, you know, I had a skimmer that was rated, uh, I guess too, too, um, high for my bio load and for my tank. And, and, uh, the way you explain it to me is that the skimmer doesn't, um, if it's too oversized, it's not going to be operating full time. Right. And then it's just going to stop skimming and then it's going to, the organics are going to build up and it's going to be an inefficient way to pull out, you know, the, um, the, the organics in a tank. Yep. That's correct. It's all based on neck size and the bigger the skimmer, the larger the neck volume. Well, the larger the neck volume, the more dissolved organics you need to generate enough foam to fill that neck. And in the absence of enough dissolved organics, you don't make foam, you make bubbles and bubbles don't generate skim mate. So you end up with a skimmer that'll generate great foam for a couple of days and then it slows down and just creates bubbles until the organics build back up enough that it can generate a sufficient foam head to fill the neck. And, you know, it's what we refer to as inconsistent skimming. And it's generally a sign of an oversized skimmer relative to the bio load. So, you know, when you look at skimmer ratings from any manufacturer, they typically give, you know, a size range. And at the low end of that size range, it's assumed that you'll have a heavy load. Well, you know, in our terms, a heavy load is a half inch of fish per display gallon. And, you know, most people don't understand that. I hear, oh, I've got a heavy load all the time. Well, coral doesn't generate a lot of dissolved organics. Um, our sumps and refugiums really don't contribute to the load. They contribute to load reduction. So we focus on the dis display size and the true fish load because that's where the dissolved organics that you know are going to help us generate a good foam head are going to be. And, and that's typically how I would base skimmer sizing. And it's a lesson that I learned on my own. Um, over the years using oversized skimmers on my systems and fighting the, you know, fighting the inconsistent nature of them. Right. So, you know, if, if somebody wanted to kind of start from scratch a new system and, and they were looking for a sump and a skimmer and the return pump on the whole nine yards, I, you know, there's, I guess there's a number of things that, that um, come into play here, right? You, you mentioned bio load and, and uh, how many fish are in a tank. And I guess it depends in terms of whether a tank is going to be an SPS dominant tank or, or a softy tank or LPS or a mixed reef or, or, or whatever the case may be. What, what's your advice in terms of people um, that want to kind of start a brand new system? And what, what kind of information do they need to gather to, to help, you know, you guys plan out you know, a full-blown system for them? Well, you know, as you know, obviously, we don't build tanks. So, you know, our focus is on skimmers, pumps, and, and sumps. But, you know, the first question I'm going to ask, obviously, is going to be what the display size is. Um, is that's going to be, you know, relative to the skimmer sizing? And then secondly, um, what the fish load, you know, stock plan is. Um, coral, you know, that really doesn't have much of a bearing in terms of what I would envision 
uh, you know, as far as skimmer sizing and stuff like that. And then the flip side also, um, you know, would be is what type of sump they want. I mean, are they going to run filter socks? Are they planning on running, you know, fleece filtration setup? Because if you're running a fleece filtration setup, that changes everything because the fleece, you know, technology typically removes the solids before they ever become dissolved. Um, and the end result is much less dissolved solids in the water. Um, and so bearing that in mind, we typically recommend stepping down at least a size in the skimmer. And then, of course, you know, the fish load plays into this as well, because, you know, the truth of the matter is you can have a thousand gallon display. And if you've only got a dozen fish in there or 20 fish in there, you'd be better off with a skimmer that's rated for 180 gallon display or whatever, you know, that load size would be comparable or relative to in terms of skimmer sizing. So it's not just about display sizing, but load size. And then you factor in, you know, what the, you know, filtration methodology, mechanical filtration over and above the skimmer is going to be, whether, you know, like I said, filter socks, fleece roll, you know, particularly fleece roll is going to impact the, you know, decision-making process there as well. And then, of course, you know, pumps. Um, if you're running fleece, you know, you don't want the same kind of flow that you might want, you know, in the absence of a fleece filter setup because fleece performs much better with lower flow, you know, especially when you consider that most fleece filters or, you know, like the Royal Exclusive Green Boxes are triggered by sump level. If you have too much flow going through a sump, you end up with turbulence in the sump and that may prematurely trigger the fleece roll to, you know, activate and the end result is you end up wasting fleece. So slower flow is better in that case. And so those are some of the questions that I would ask. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, what the plans are and, you know, what they're looking for in a sump so that I can, you know, aid in, you know, making um, or helping them make appropriate decisions as far as ancillary equipment goes. Yeah, you know, sometimes I hear people talk about, well, you know, I want to start a, let's say, a 200-gallon system, but, um, you know, I want to get some equipment that would allow me to potentially, you know, go bigger in the future. That's you know, based on what, what uh, you're talking about, that's probably going to be a difficult thing to do, right, in terms of buying equipment for a, a tank and then trying to size up uh, later on? Well, I mean, it's really not. You know, when it comes to sumps, I'm a firm believer that bigger is always better. You know, and same with pumps, too. You really can't have too big of a pump, especially these days when you can control the flow on them. You know, and those are two key components. Now, skimmer sizing, that's a whole other quagmire, and I get that question an awful lot. You know, I've got a hundred gallon tank and I'm planning a hundred and eighty gallon, you know, in a year. Um, you know, can I get a two hundred size skimmer? And you know, my usual recommendation is to people in that case is to hold off. Use what you got now. And when you're ready to upgrade, upgrade. Uh, otherwise you're gonna be fighting it. And you know, I mean unless they really want to run it wet and are willing to deal with, you know, a little bit of inconsistency, you know, sometimes waiting is better, sometimes less is more. But, you know, from my aspect, being a high nutrient guy, you know, dissolved organics going up and down is really not that big of a deal as long as you understand how your skimmer is going to perform. You know, we as hobbyists tend to chase numbers and we tend to chase things. We're always fine-tuning everything. And, you know, an inconsistent skimmer can drive people bat batty. Um, and, and so as long as you understand that it's going to be inconsistent and realize that, you know, if you go oversized, you're never going to, you know, it's going to produce well one day and the next day it's not. If you understand that, you don't try to chase it too much. You won't go too nuts. Uh, but normally I'd recommend, you know, staying with size appropriate stuff and upgrading when the time comes and the situation's appropriate. No point in pissing money in the wind. Good advice. <laughs> so you mentioned um, fleece roller mats and, and, and Royal Exclusive. That's a relatively new product for you guys, right, in terms of dream boxes with the mats? 
Well, um, the Dreambox has been on the market now for about two years. So I wouldn't say it's with all the that new, uh, with the fleece. Right. Right. You know, unlike Dreambox 2s and, you know, the filter sock Dreamboxes that have been on the market for several years or more. Um, so in terms of the company, it's a relatively new product and they're, you know, currently, you know, coming out with other iterations like the Eco Dreambox 3 um, and then the Step Dreamboxes, which are scalable, smaller versions. So we do have a fairly wide product range in the fleece things, including now standalone fleece filters that are, you know, basically um, add-ons to existing some. So that's also, you know, a very new product. So talk more about the Echo uh, Fleece Dream Box. What's, what's you know, unique on that versus other um, smaller sums somebody might be able to find out there? Well, um, you know, it, it's, it uses the same methodology as the existing Dream Box. So, you know, it's a very high-end um, fleece motor. It's just a scaled-down solution. And, you know, some some... Areas, you know, where they, they made the box smaller um, to appeal to a, a more budget conscious crowd, you know, but make no mistake. I mean, these are high end boxes, whether you're looking at the Eco Dream Box, the Step Dream Box um, or, you know, uh, the standard, you know, full fledged Dream Box 3. It's just, you know, something that's targeted at a, you know, a lower budget crowd that has, you know, a more small system. Yep, makes sense. So, Scott, any, anything you could talk about that's in the pipeline, um, you know, on the horizon that, um, you know, hasn't been talked a lot about Royal Exclusive? Any new products? Well, yeah, we're in the process of releasing a DC line. There's There's been some mandates in Europe, particularly, uh, where, you know, pumps and consumer, you know, grade pumps and stuff like that, um, that are variable speed need to adhere to 12 volt. Um, or low voltage technology. So Royal Exclusive is launching a new line of DC-based pumps um, that will operate at 12 and 24 volts to meet those um, requirements. And, you know, the end result is, too, that, you know, without cutting corners, these are lower-cost pumps. They are obviously geared more towards the mid-range market, um, unlike the RD3s that are more of a high-end pump. Um, but, you know, they, they, it's, it's a, a, a no sacrifice dc type of pump whereas the rd3 runs at a much higher variable speed voltage um these will operate at more you know the 12 and 24 volt market and you know there'll be an 85 watt um there's a 45 watt uh the 40 or 40 watt and that'll be available both as a skimmer pump um and a flow pump and they'll be released here in the states um probably in the next 60 days with our next shipment coming from germany so that's a new product on the market to look forward <laughs> Excuse me. Um, and we also recently released our step dream box, which I kind of briefly touched on. And that's a dream box that you can order in different sizes. Historically, um, you weren't able to custom order a dream box and say, I want it, you know, X size. We have our cookie cutter sizes that they adhere to, you know, for cost reasons because of all the CNC work and CAD work that goes into it. Sorry, my great thing is seems to be really <laughs> We got another um, guest. <laughs> Yes, we have another guest, um, and then the other great Dane just decided to bang. Guys, stop. Come on. Guys, go on. Um, so it must be near Broke your train of thought for them or dinner time. Yeah. So um, the Step Dream Box, unlike all the other ones, you can order it in 10-centimeter increments. So you can say, I want it 100 centimeters or 110 centimeters or 150 or 160 centimeters long by you know, whatever wide um, in 10 centimeter increments. That's something new that they're doing. And they also have a variation of those 
um, step green boxes. It has a built-in ATO tank, which is also very unique to the green box product line. And like any of the green boxes, um, every corner, every panel is CNC cut. Every seam is interlocking. So again, it's kind of a no compromise solution, but it is aimed at a more budget conscious crowd. And in particular, they were originally kind of, kind of um, developed for the Red Sea reefer market, which, you know, is a pretty confined space. Um, so, you know, that, that product is, you know, kind of unique in that we can get them under the Red Sea reefers and customers can scale the size um, for smaller applications. And I think they go up to 150 centimeters long. Uh, which isn't you know necessarily small by many people's standards. So, and and Scott, so these are all the the dream boxes are all pretty much customizable, right? You guys do sell certain sets, but they're all customizable and they're all manufactured in Germany, correct? That's correct. All manufactured in Germany, and you know when I, we say customizable, you can choose your seam color, um, you can choose your intake sizing, um, outfit sizing is typically um, based on whatever pump is going to be running it, whether it's a Royal exclusive pump or something else. Um, so you choose that. We have wire fasteners built into the dream box as an option. We have media reactors that get built in dosing tubes. They can be um, built into it as well so that you can just hook your dosing lines directly into it. And there's little PVC pipes um, like four millimeter or six millimeter pipes that run into the water. Um, things of that nature, special controller holders for the RD3s and RDXs and RD5 eco pumps. Um, obviously, the lids are CNC cut for Bubble King skimmers if that's something that they want. Um, and uh, uh, that basically, in a nutshell, you know, I mean, that covers a lot of the customization there. So, you, you guys have a warehouse in um, the United States and you do carry stock in terms of skimmers and pumps and other items, right? But the Dream Boxes are right now manufactured in Germany. Any plans at all in the near future or next couple of years to manufacture Dream Boxes in the U.S.? Uh, at this point, no. You know, there's part of that lure that, you know, things are built in Germany. And as I touched on before, um, the owner, Klaus, um, you know, he he's he basically goes over every one of those dream boxes himself and hand welds those things. And, and that's an art. Um, and to bring that product line and start manufacturing it here in the U.S., while it sounds great on paper, uh, the quality control you know, is a concern. And when you have an owner that is invested in his products the way that Klaus does and the quality shows, you know, as a result, to try to duplicate him, I mean, let's face it, this isn't a coral that we can frag. If we can cut off one of his arms and stick it in some water and grow another Klaus out here like we can an SPS coral, that would be great. But unfortunately, fragging Klaus just isn't going to fly. <laughs> and um, any sort of that would result in a compromise in quality. So I really don't see that happening and and at the end of the day too when you look at some of the materials like the front panels on a dream box you know everybody else will take you know that makes a pvc sump out there they bond acrylic to the front panel and it doesn't bond properly to be honest um and unlike everybody else royal exclusive uses a proprietary clear pvc for those panels to ensure that the bond lasts forever and you can't get that material here in the u.s so to ship those kind of panels across the pond um, to start a production line out here really would be cost effective. And, you know, I know people look at the costs on shipping a dream box, but if you go to any other sump maker and you ask them to build something that's even remotely comparable, you know, it doesn't cost as much as people might think. Yeah. I tell you, I, I, so. I have a dream box that I've been using from you guys from, uh, geez, about five years now. And that thing is bulletproof. 
Oh, yeah. It'll outlast your tank. And that's one thing people don't realize that these things will not fail. I mean, you could park a truck on one of those things and, you know, it'll hold up. Um, you try that with an acrylic tank, you know, and we all know, I mean, acrylic crazes over the years and, you know, just is not a lifetime kind of product, whereas the Dreambox will outlast most people in this hobby by a long shot. So, Scott, I don't want to keep you any longer. Any, um, any final thoughts you wanted to share with the audience? Well, you know, you kind of mentioned it earlier, nothing um, good comes quickly in this hobby. And that's something that I, I, the sword that I live by and die by, and it's a message I always try to tell people, take it slow. You know, as hobbyists, we want to be in this hobby a long time. And, you know, we have people that come and go from this hobby, and it's usually because their experiences aren't positive. You know, the losses pile up. Um, and the success rate, you know, dwindles. And so I've, you know, from my experience in this hobby, as I said, nothing good comes um, quickly in this hobby. Take it slow. Um, you know, if you put a tank together, when I do my installs and I do a fair amount of high-end installs, I usually encourage the customers to wait several months to a year before they put coral into a tank. Because if you do that and you let the system truly stabilize, you're going to be a lot more successful. And, you know, what people don't realize is, uh, you know, it's not just about what we can read on our test kits. There's so much more to a tank maturing than, you know, your initial nitrification cycle. Um, so take it slow. Be patient. Let the system mature before you start putting things into it, and you'll be a lot more successful in the long run. I totally agree. I think you got to just be in it for the long haul. It's The instant gratification is a, is a, can be a curse for some people. They just want to stock a tank and put some corals in there, and they just want to kind of see the finished result right off the bat. And uh, I always say to myself, you know what, just take it slow and you know, it's, it's going to, you know, it's, it's going to pay off in the long run. And, uh, you know, also I, I, I'm a big advocate of using live rock and live sand and, um, Absolutely. versus dry rock. I think, I mean, there's some beautiful yep. dry rock tanks out there, but I think it takes even longer to get, uh, yep. an established bacterial bed with a dry rock only tank. So those could be really tricky. Yep. I concur with you there. I'm a firm, firm believer in using live rock. It's kind of a shame because, you know, back in the, um, 80s and 90s, you know, when I really got into this hobby, um, and 90s, mid 90s, when I was getting live rock, and uh, you know, it was a lot different than what you see now. I mean, Walt Smith, you know, he's a he's a pioneer in this hobby in terms of rock, and boy, what he brought to the table back in the you know 90s and 80s from Fiji was just unbelievable. I mean, you get rock that had coral and all kinds of stuff on it, and you just don't see that these days. And you know, it's it's a shame. But then again, you know. We've raped our oceans to the point where, you know, even finding quality rock, if they could collect it, which a lot of them can't anymore because of the laws, um, you know, it's just not like what it was, you know. But any kind of live rock, you know, as long as it's got the bacterial and it's well seasoned is definitely a benefit to the tank and certainly helps kickstart that maturity process and the biological diversification. Hey, Scott, a quick question from the Lone Aquarius. He's wondering if you're still active on Reef to Reef. He was also asking about if you're still running your large fish tank, but uh, we already talked about the beginning. So, uh, no, he's, he, he moved to Montana, and he's hoping to start another reef tank at some point, maybe in the next year or so. But uh, are you still active on Reef to Reef there, Scott? I, I am on Reef to Reef. Um, you know, we seem to get a lot of inquiries through Reef Central, um, which tends to be where I spend most of my time. Um, obviously since my tank is not up, I have not been staying on top of my build thread on both reef central and reef to reef. Uh, my last updates were basically, I think, uh, you know, this is the beginning of the end, um, or the beginning of a new beginning, I might say. 
Um, so no, I have not been that active, but I do go to Reef to Reef, and uh, you're welcome to send me a friend request on Facebook as well. Um, obviously, I do provide lots of updates to uh, you know through my Facebook followers. Um, so you know, I'm Scott Leaf on um, Facebook, L E I F. So feel free to send me a friend request there and follow along on my new journey and uh, some of the other stuff that I'll be doing, which also still involves fish. Um, just. Just not necessarily going to involve salt water in the immediate <laughs> term, but I'm going to take what I know and bring that into uh, putting food on the table in the uh, with the um, addition of an aquaponics system that I'm designing and building. Awesome. Well, listen, Scott, thank you, man, so much for for being a guest on the show. Really uh, appreciate it. And um, you know, you and I will uh, be in touch very soon. Well, look forward to look forward to, it. and thank you very much for having me. It's been a, a pleasure. So that'll do it for this show. I want to give, uh, you know, again, Scott, my sincere thanks for being a guest on the show. Next Wednesday at 5 p.m., I'm going to have Richard from the Aficionado channel on. So I hope everybody will tune in. It should be an interesting show. Until then, so long.